Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me once again this morning to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this word of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, at these four names of Jesus given to us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We have been really looking at a Christmas prophecy 800 years before the first Christmas. It is an amazing thought. About 800 years before Christ was born, we have this prophecy in Isaiah 9, telling us not only that a child would be born, but that he would be born to us, a gift given to us. And not only that, but clarifying who this child is going to be and what this child is going to do, further raising our expectations for Jesus. Now, this is one of over 400 prophecies about the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as you come to understand the Old Testament correctly, you'll realize that every verse in the Old Testament is actually pointing us to the coming of Christ. From the very beginning to the very end, from every type and every picture and every story, all of them leading us to Jesus Christ. Even the most sentimental of the stories that we know in the Old Testament, whether it be David and Goliath or Noah and the ark, all of them pointing us forward to Jesus Christ. And generation after generation of the people of God had read the stories of the Old Testament and had seen the prophecies and heard the prophecies of the Old Testament and every generation waiting and hoping with great expectation that one day the Messiah would come. And the Lord, every generation further revealing who this one is going to be and where he's going to be born and how he is going to come so that when he comes, we would recognize him. Which knowing all that, makes it incredibly surprising that when Jesus actually did come, the majority of people missed him. In fact, that's probably not even a fair way to say it. It's not that they just missed him, they completely rejected him. The vast majority of those, specifically those who knew the Old Testament, who had been waiting for generation after generation for Jesus to come, were the exact ones who, when he came, rejected him. How is it with over 400 prophecies and all of these years to be able to see the Old Testament and understand the heart of God and even get many of the specifics of when the Messiah was going to come, how is it that after all that time, when he came, they missed him and, in fact, absolutely rejected him? The answer is actually not complicated at all. They missed him and rejected him because when Jesus came... He was not at all what they expected, and he wasn't even what they wanted. Now, throughout the generations, they had created in their mind this idea of who God was and what God was going to do. They had created in their minds this picture of who the Messiah was going to be, much of it formed by their cultural moment. So in every generation, they looked at the moment that they were in, and as they looked in that moment and were hoping for a Messiah to come, they would create in their minds this idea of exactly who he was going to be and exactly what he was going to do. And all of this was based on their expectations and their perceived needs. And so they had created this picture of what the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. And when Jesus came, he was not anything like they expected or wanted Jesus did not meet their expectations, and because of that, they rejected him. Isaiah 9 gives us even greater understanding and more insight into how that can happen. 
not only how it did happen with them, meaning for generation after generation waiting, but creating a picture that was not reality so that when Jesus did come, they rejected him. But even giving us more insight into how that same thing happens with us. Because it does happen with us. We give, we put in our minds a picture of who God is supposed to be and what he is supposed to do. And we take all of our perceived needs and think that's what Jesus is supposed to take care of. And then when he doesn't come through exactly like we expected him or do all the things that we thought he was going to do, we miss him or oftentimes even reject him. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, as we look at this prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. If you have that in your Bibles and are there, say amen. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we've spent the last few weeks looking at those four names of Jesus in Isaiah 9-6. We looked at what it means that Jesus will be a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and last week an everlasting father, but this morning... We look at the fact that the one who is going to come will be a prince of peace. The picture that is painted here is a a mighty warrior who will invade the earth and in so doing will bring in a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that will not end and his kingdom will be marked by justice and righteousness and ultimately it will be a kingdom of peace. Now, Jesus did come as a mighty warrior to bring in a kingdom of peace but not like they expected him to. You see, when you think about the context of Isaiah when he was writing this, it makes sense why they had kind of misunderstood the coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah ministered in a time of incredible difficulty. He lived in some really dark days. There was a king named King Uzziah who reigned for 52 years in Judah. And for 52 years, he generally walked with the Lord and listened to the Lord and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As a result, the Lord brought upon them incredible stability. So the entire nation was a time of political stability, economic growth, military strength, and spiritual light. This was marked by King Uzziah's time. But we know from the book of Isaiah that King Uzziah died. 
And after King Uzziah died, his son did okay in the eyes of the Lord. And then there was a bad king, and then there was a good king, and there was a couple of bad kings, and then there was a good king, and there were a bunch more bad kings. And so in the next 50 years after Uzziah died, there were five kings in 50 years following one king who reigned for 52 years. And the entire nation was like this until toward the end, the nation began to glow an incredible decline. Military weakness. Economic struggle. Political unrest. And most of all, spiritual darkness. The entire first eight chapters of Isaiah talk about the gloom, as we saw in chapter 9, that hovered over the earth. Imagine living in a time in which there was no light. Everything seemed dark, and the days seemed difficult, and there was no political or economic or military strength at all, and there was a spiritual darkness over the entire land. And the worst part was, is that as Judah and the people of God began to decline, then the Assyrians began to rise. And God was raising up the Assyrians that they might come and oppress the people of God because they were unfaithful. And so it was that the Assyrians began to bully the people of God. They began to exploit the people of God. They began to take advantage of the people of God. And ultimately, the Babylonians would come in and take the people of God captive so they'd have no more freedom at all. So Isaiah is writing in that moment, that cultural moment in which there is a real darkness over the land, in which the people are no longer free, they're enslaved. Now imagine... When you're living in that moment and all of a sudden you hear this, pro- this prophecy, what begins to be created in your mind? I mean, they wanted a savior. They wanted a defender. They wanted a ruler to bring political, military, economic rest. And these seven verses, there's ten promises. All of them greater than the next one of this king who was going to come and how he would rule. And the great crescendo of all of these promises is in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's exactly what they wanted. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, a king is going to come, like King David. And he's going to bring justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do that. Bringing us back to the picture we have all throughout the Old Testament of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, who is going to come in and bring in a political kingdom in which justice will rule and reign. His people will be delivered. All of his enemies will be destroyed. And this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted a valiant warrior, a great champion with political and military power to restore and deliver and rescue them. They wanted a kingdom of peace. So they waited. 800 years they waited. And even at the time of Jesus, this is still what they wanted. It was a different enemy, but they were still oppressed. Now the people of God were oppressed under the Romans. They had no freedom. Economically, spiritually, they were dark days, very much like the days of Isaiah. And then all of a sudden they're told that the long-awaited Messiah had come. (laughs) But he was born in a manger. He didn't come with a sword. He didn't come with a crown. He didn't come in a chariot. He didn't come with seemingly any military power at all. He did not come with any political agenda at all. And here was this child that was born, the long-awaited child, generation after generation, hoping and expecting someone to come. And he was not at all what they expected and frankly was not at all what they wanted. So they rejected him. They rejected him because he didn't meet their expectations. 
They fail to realize that God doesn't give us what we think we need. God gives us what he knows we need. You see, what they had thought is this. If we just had this guy, that's everything that we need. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't need that guy. You need the guy that I'm bringing you. What you think you need is not actually what you need the most. I think just in life, we often kind of recognize this. We come to realize the older we get that what we thought we needed was not actually what we needed. As the great 20th century theologian Garth Brooks says, thank God for unanswered prayers. Imagine if at every moment when we thought we needed something and we prayed for it, if God would have done all of those things, imagine what a mess it would be if God followed our agenda. If God always said, oh, what, what do you need? Okay, let me, let me take care of that and let me take care of that. Because we don't know ourselves that well. God who created us knows us perfectly. He gives us exactly what we need even if it's not what's expected. That's exactly the story of the coming of Jesus. God did not meet their expectations, but he met their greatest needs. And what God knew is what they needed more than deliverance from the Assyrians or from the Romans What they needed more from the overwhelming sense of the wrath of these nations is that they needed deliverance from the wrath of God. You see, they looked at their current circumstances and there's all this chaos around them. And what they wanted is someone to deliver them from the chaos around them. But Jesus came to deliver them from the chaos inside of them. Now, that's not what they would have chosen. They actually probably would have been fine, frankly, as most of us often would in the flesh, If everything inside of us was wrong, but everything outside of us was at peace, that's what we think we need. But God, who knows us so well, says, no, 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 no. It doesn't do any good if there is peace around you, if there is not peace in you. That there is a greater wrath upon you than the Assyrians and the Romans and the Babylonians. It is the very wrath of God. What the Bible teaches us is that Jesus is coming with two peacekeeping missions. Two peacekeeping missions. The first peacekeeping mission is the one that we celebrate at Christmas. The second peacekeeping mission is the one we still look forward to. Both of them exactly what we need the most. Let's think about that first peacekeeping mission of Jesus. The one that we celebrate this morning. It was in that peacekeeping mission in which Jesus came specifically to take care of the battle within us. He came to take care of the wrath of God against us. He came to reconcile us to God. You know that word reconcile means to make peace. If there's a relationship that's not right, you would say that relationship needs to be reconciled because of our sin, our relationship with God was not right. It needed to be reconciled. Jesus came to keep peace and bring peace between us and God. Listen to what it says in Romans 5. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus came to bring peace between us and God. God himself is against us. We are enemies of God. We are under the wrath of God. We have a hostile relationship to God. And so Colossians 1 says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He came to die that we might be reconciled to God. Ephesians 2 says it this way, For he himself is our peace 
who has made us both one and now has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The picture is this, is there is between all of us individually and between us and God a dividing wall of hostility. We can't have a right relationship with God and we can't have a right relationship with each other. And so God knew that the only way that that wall could be taken down is through the coming of Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a criminal's death. He did not come with a crown. He did not come with a sword. He came to bear a cross. That he did come and we, bore, we saw his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1. But it says this, that the light shone in darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, we saw the glorious Christ coming in the flesh, but because he was not what we expected, we missed him. And because he did not meet our greatest perceived need, we rejected him. But what God was doing in his wisdom is taking care of the greatest thing that we had against us, and that is the very wrath of God that would send us to hell forever. You know, that's what hell is. Hell is an eternity of the wrath of God because of our sins. It is the just wrath of God. We deserve it because of our sins. But Jesus Christ came so that on the cross, listen, he might take upon himself the wrath of God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So all of the wrath of God that was supposed to be ours was placed upon Jesus. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that when we receive him, we might have peace with God. It's not what we thought we needed. It's not even necessarily what we wanted, but the God who knows us so well and loves us and longs to have a relationship with us has brought his son, Jesus Christ, so that he might make There really is no peace anywhere unless first there is peace with God. Now, listen to this. There will be a second coming of Jesus. He will come again and he will establish a kingdom on earth and we will see the full fulfillment of everything in Isaiah chapter 9. And he will destroy all of his enemies and he will gather all of his people and he will establish a kingdom on earth where righteousness and justice and peace reigns forever. And those who know him will reign with him for all of eternity. The zeal of the horde of hosts will do this. And Peter tells us the only reason he's waiting is because he's waiting for more to come to know him. But when the fullness of time comes, when the Lord knows it's the right time, there will be a second peacekeeping mission of Jesus. He will establish a literal, physical kingdom on earth, and all that have peace with him will reign and rule with him in this kingdom of peace. It's coming. And there will be no more anguish and no more death and no more gloom and no more pain, but peace will reign. We sing at Christmas, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. The only time there will ever fully be peace on earth is when Jesus Christ rules and reigns. This is where we are right now. We celebrate Advent because what we do is we look back and we look forward, but we're stuck in the middle. We look back at the first peacekeeping mission of Jesus and we know that that's exactly what we needed and we have peace with God, but yet we await this second peacekeeping of Jesus when we long for the fulfillment of this prophecy where he establishes his kingdom on earth, I think the difficulty for us is to know what to do in the middle. Like, how do we live between these two missions? How do we live right now today, looking back at his first mission, looking forward at his second mission, understand that he has come to make peace, but he will not fully establish that and bring that on earth until he comes again. And so while we wait, 
And while we look back and while we look forward and we live in this moment, let me just tell you exactly what we do. First of all, we we embrace the chaos. We embrace the chaos. There's all of this chaos around us. There's all of this chaos in our lives. And we have to understand that because we live in this moment, there will always be chaos until Christ comes back. This is the reality of the life in which we live. When Andrew and I first got married, uh, I was looking for a church to pastor and had just graduated seminary and had had a couple of opportunities to go pastor to my uncle Bill Elif, who was a pastor in Little Rock, called and said, hey, y'all are just getting married. Come spend a few years with us. We'd love to invest in you and in your marriage and you can preach and lead staff and do all these things here. And so we did. And my uncle Bill has eight children. And uh, I've realized four is when people start thinking you're crazy. Five is which they're convinced. Eight, we just, you know, this is, this is when people start looking at you a little odd. And I uh, have this picture of my Uncle Bill. It's, it's just a classic picture. So we'd go to their house, and for some reason, they built a house with an open floor plan with 10 people in the home. I think this is the time to build a home with compartmentalized rooms. So all of the noise, does everybody, this open floor plan is great. Well, I don't care what's happening, everybody knows. And here's the visual picture I still have my Uncle Bill. That everything is going on, there's absolute chaos in the house. There's running, there's fighting, there's arguing, there's throwing, all kinds of things are happening. Uncle Bill is always sitting in his lazy boy recliner, reading a book, absolutely oblivious to anything going on. I can't tell you how often I've thought about that picture. And I think what happened is, is that Uncle Bill realized that when you choose to have a family full of children, it's a wonderful blessing and it's going to be chaos. If you don't like chaos, don't have a bunch of kids. And it's not a bad chaos, it's just loud. And it's crazy. And I think sometimes what we do is we want to fight this. We want to say, wait, I don't don't want this. It can't be chaos. Everybody be quiet. They're not going to be quiet and they're not supposed to be quiet. They're kids. Sometimes Andrew and I, will look at this happen this week. We'll say, hey, kids, stop doing that. And we'll look at each other and go, why? Just let them do that. Who cares? Like it's just being kids. I think one thing that happens to us in life is we have this unfulfilled expectation that we're going to have heaven on earth. That somehow when we come to Christ, all the chaos around us is, is going to be gone. And it doesn't help when we sing songs like Silent Night. Where it tells us that on that night Jesus was born, all was calm and all was bright. We sang it away in a manger that tells us that Jesus didn't even cry when he was born. That's ridiculous. I guarantee you, all was not calm and bright. Even in that moment, Jesus was crying and he dirtied his diaper and all of those. Because that's life. Listen, the only time we will get heaven on earth is when Jesus comes back. And until Jesus comes back, there will always be unrest and uncertainty and death and struggle in this life. We live in a broken world and chaos is always abounding. And God never promised us heaven now. He promised us heaven later. I think a lot of our unfulfilled expectations often even comes when we're longing for what they were longing for. We want some political leader to come and to to bring heaven on earth to establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice so that all the sin is done and all the sinners are gone and it's just righteousness and holiness on earth, but it will never happen until Jesus comes back. 
and we pursue righteousness and peace and holiness, but just know this, until Jesus Christ returns, death and conflict and pain and suffering and strife is always going to be around us. We live in that time. This is a broken world. So instead of being constantly disgruntled and frustrated with a God who doesn't meet our expectations, put in the line of your expectations that we live in a broken world and embrace the chaos of life. It's simply part of life. But not only do we need to embrace the chaos, we need to make peace with God. God has been really gracious to let us live in this moment. Do you realize that? Peter tells us that the reason Jesus Christ has not returned yet is because he's given an opportunity to everyone to come to Christ. And God, in his incredible grace, brought you here this morning. I don't know why you're here. You may be here every week. You may have come and visit with family. And God has given you a moment to make peace with God. To trust in Jesus Christ alone as the payment for your sins. To recognize that because of your sin, the wrath of God is against you. And you will die and spend eternity in hell unless you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and choose to trust and follow him. It doesn't matter if you said a prayer when you were four or five years old. What matters is this. Today, are you trusting and following Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you have peace with God? It's an amazing thought that this morning, God has brought you to this moment, to this place in the midst of all the busyness of Christmas so that you can be confronted with the idea that you need peace with God and you can have it this morning. By simply receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by surrendering your life to His authority. We do embrace the chaos around us, but we understand that God in His grace has given us a moment to have peace with God. We embrace the chaos, we have peace with God. And then listen, we also walk in the peace of God. You see, those who get peace with God experience the peace of God. Now here's the beautiful news. Even when you come to know Christ, there's still chaos. Right? So if anyone's told you that when you come to know Christ, all the chaos ceases, it's not not telling you the truth. You come to know Christ, you get peace with God, but the chaos still abounds. But here's what the Lord says, that because you know me, it is possible for my peace to rest in you. For the very peace of God to be in you. Listen, Listen to this. John 14, 27 says, my peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Philippians 4, 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Early this morning, I emailed a a couple in our church whose adult son died this week unexpectedly in their home. Before the service, I went back to the back of the sanctuary and I embraced an older lady and let her cry on my shoulder because last night her husband passed away. This is life. It's hard. But if you have peace with God, it is possible in the midst of all of that for you to experience the Prince of Peace who in your heart gives you a supernatural ability to live in the midst of the chaos in a way that is peaceful. Not as the world gives peace, but as only he can give peace. The fact is, is that we look at all the chaos around us, and we want Jesus to fix it all, don't we? It's 
especially at Christmas. And by chaos, I mean family members and everything else. We have this list of all the things we would like for God to do. And if he just did that, everything would be okay. God, just do this and do this. But every time we do that, we assume that we know better than God. What we're doing is we're saying, God, I, I, I need you. I'm going to hold you hostage to meet my expectations. And when he doesn't do it, we get disappointed with God. Listen, God loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He has given you exactly what you need, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. And instead of taking away all the chaos around you, he has come to give you a peace in the midst of the chaos. And he wants you to know it, and he wants you to experience it. I love Psalm 46. I'll end with this. Psalm 46 is a psalm which paints a picture of absolute chaos. The mountains are trembling. They're falling into the heart of the sea. The waters are roaring. It tells us the nations are all raging. It it just paints this picture of absolute chaos all around him. At the very end, it says this. Be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. Now, be still and know that I am God is not a call to be quiet and meditate. Here's what it is. When he says, be still and know that I am God, what he says is this, stop worrying and stop fretting. I will eventually win and you are on my side. So in the midst of all the chaos, let your heart be at peace because you have peace with God and can experience the peace of God. So just stop fretting and let the peace of Christ dwell in your heart. That's the gift that God's given you in the Prince of Peace. I just pray that somehow in his grace you would experience it this morning.